Welcome to HealthCom Central, where we unpack theories and frameworks that can help you create more effective communication to improve both health outcomes and health equity. I'm your host, Karen Hilliard, behavioral scientist and longtime communication practitioner. If you're looking for fresh approaches that get real results, you are in the right place. So let's get started. Hello and welcome to all of you HealthCom nerds and HealthCom novices. Welcome to another episode of HealthCom Central. We're still in the early stages of our podcast, and in some of these early episodes, even though I'm sprinkling in some current issues and some tools that will help cover communication and marketing basics, I'm also introducing you to what I consider to be the most foundational frameworks we use here at HealthCom Central. There are five of them, actually. Social marketing, social determinants of health, behavioral economics, systems thinking, and design thinking. And maybe you've even already listened to episodes five and six, which talk about social determinants of health and social marketing. Later, I am planning to do a series of episodes on every one of these five frameworks. But for now, I'm just really doing introductions. Now, if you're a healthcom nerd and not a novice, you may be saying to yourself, oh yeah, you know, I already know what social determinants of health is, or I already use behavioral economics. And if that's the case, fantastic. But my question for you is, do you know how to explain it clearly to a novice, like a new employee or a funder or a decision maker, maybe a partner who is from a different sector? Do you know why it works? Do you know how to make the case for using it in a campaign or intervention? And if the answer is, mm, I don't know, then these podcasts are actually also for you as an experienced health communicator, as well as for people who are just learning about these ideas. So buckle up and get ready to learn not just what something is, but how to talk about it with all of your audiences. So in earlier episodes, as you know, we covered social marketing. If I had to summarize the takeaway behind social marketing, it would be to say that people don't change their behavior just because they know that they should be doing something. It has to meet their needs so they're motivated to do it. While part of a good social marketing plan is lowering barriers to behavior and increasing perceived benefits, ultimately the agency or power to decide is in the hands of the individual. However, we also covered in an earlier episode, social determinants of health. And if I had to summarize the takeaway there, it would be that too often knowing the healthy behavior and or being highly motivated to engage in a healthier behavior often are not enough because the conditions in which people live their lives create systemic barriers that deny them the opportunity to choose healthier behaviors. In that framework, people may lack agency or power to choose a behavior, and so changing policies, systems, and the environment is the key to better health outcomes. All right, so today, now, we are talking about a third framework, behavioral economics. And the takeaway from this, which we're about to dive into in more detail, is that we often don't make choices in our own best interest because humans are often irrational. We often want to avoid change or risk or effort, but the way things are structured in the environment can help us make better choices. And that may especially be true for people who are experiencing greater challenges and stress due to the social determinants of health. 
So behavioral economics is both about understanding the individual and about changing the environment so people are enabled to make better choices. Behavioral economics is basically a way of working with and not against the inherent flaws in reasoning and decision-making that come with being human. One of the great things, in my opinion, also about behavioral economics is that unlike many other areas of behavioral science, it's less dependent on audience research. You know, to apply the health belief model or stages of change or social norms, we have to have data and be able to segment the audience. But many of the concepts in behavioral economics apply very broadly to most humans. So not only are they effective, but they require less upfront research, less time, less money. That makes them a good fit for situations where we need new approaches, but we may not have the resources or we need to act very quickly and we don't have time. Now, a question many people have is, why is it called behavioral economics? That can be a little scary and strike fear in your heart if you're, you had a not-so-great experience in a college econ class or if you're not really a quant person, but the good news is that you don't really have to do any math here. The field of behavioral economics is one that got its start in economics departments, however, mainly as a rebuttal to all the theories in that discipline that counted on people to behave in rational, logical ways where they always do something in their best interest. Oftentimes, some of these economic theories made sense on paper, but they didn't actually hold up in the real world. Kind of like in the story, The Emperor's New Clothes, where it really took somebody coming along to state what should have been an obvious truth. Early behavioral economists were the ones who dared to say to their colleagues, hey, wait a minute, these theories don't work to explain behavior. And then they set out to find out why. Now, comes my distillation of behavioral economics and three of the main reasons, three of the main findings about why people don't always behave rationally. Number one, being 100% rational and logical works great if you're a robot or for my Star Trek fans out there, if you're a Vulcan like Mr. Spock. But for most humans, emotion enters into things. When we have a desire to fit in socially or when we're dealing with fear or anger or uncertainty or some other emotional dysregulation, our decisions may not be very good ones. And even when we intend in advance to do something or to avoid something, quite often in the heat of the moment, we behave differently because of emotion. Number two reason that people don't always behave rationally, laziness and inertia. People, humans, all of us, are kind of lazy and they avoid effort and avoid change. It's really not our fault because, you know, putting in effort requires resources and making change involves risk. And our human brains protect our resources and keep us safe from risks by making it easier to stay the course and play it safe. So to avoid putting in too much effort, we develop something called heuristics, rules of thumb or shortcuts that help us make decisions. And we fall back on those a lot. They do serve a very important purpose. There's absolutely nothing wrong with heuristics. If we had to stop and consider every single decision that we make in greater detail, we would probably not get very much done. 
also, sometimes we need to act fast. We need to have those rules of thumb and those automatic behaviors in order to protect ourselves from danger. So in some of these cases, heuristics are helpful, and in other cases, not so much. The thing about behavioral economics is that it generally tries to work with our tendency to be lazy or unthinking rather than to change it. Number three reason that we're not always rational is that even when we can control our emotions and we're okay with risk or change, we often don't have the best judgment. That's because we all tend to fall prey to certain fallacies, mistaken beliefs, or faulty reasoning. And these fallacies frequently lead us into irrational behavior. Let me give you an example, several examples, actually. Let's say that you've resolved to eat out less, both to save money and because you've noticed that you often eat too much unhealthy food when you go out. But the very next day, after you've had this thought, after you've had this talk with yourself, your friends invite you to join them for dinner out. So back to number one, because you are not Mr. Spock, because you are not a robot, it's hard to be logical and rational and resist the temptation. The logical part of you might say, no, I've made a decision not to go out to eat as often. But you don't even stop to think about that because you could really use some time with friends. I mean, we are all programmed to be social beings. Or maybe you do think it over for a moment, but you have a little bit of FOMO, fear of missing out, and you decide that you're going to go. Or of course, maybe you're just really living in the moment and thinking about what you want and need today. And that's much stronger than the thought of a future you who is a little bit healthier and a little bit better off financially from having not gone out to eat. After all, you can start next week with your plan to eat out less. So your reptile brain wants what it wants and it wants it now. And it has just won the battle with your Vulcan brain. All right, so now number two, you get to the restaurant and the part of you that's lazy or doesn't like change comes into play. And all the meals on this particular menu automatically come with fries. A side salad or fruit would definitely be healthier, but the default meal comes with fries and maybe you don't even notice on the menu or you forget to change it when you place your order. Or maybe you do look at it on the menu, but there's an upcharge that dissuades you. And so instead, you go with the status quo and maybe you tell yourself, oh, I'll only eat half. Whether or not that actually happens in practice is another thing. Now, what about number three, faulty reasoning? Well, let's say that you've gone to an all-you-can-eat restaurant and it's kind of expensive and you definitely want to get your money's worth while you're there. So when... The restaurant employee offers you more of the all-you-can-eat lobster or prime rib or whatever it is that you really want to get your value out of. You decide to have a little bit more, even though you're actually already full, because after all, you paid for it. You want to get your money's worth. And then what happens? You actually leave the restaurant feeling uncomfortable. Why? Because you already paid for it? Because you wanted to get your money's worth? But, you know, the people who walk out of the restaurant feeling just the right amount of full have paid the same amount as the people who overeat till they feel bloated and queasy. It's the same amount either way. What do you want for that amount of money? Do you want to feel good or do you want to feel bloated and queasy? And yet, so many people might overeat in a situation like that. It's something called the sunk cost fallacy that leads you to think of money that has already been spent 
as somehow being more valuable than the experience of what you're getting out of it or what you're actually rewarded by. So if you came along and were trying to change the behavior of the individual in this scenario, what would you do in all these cases? Sometimes you may have to accept that people are going to behave in certain ways, but know that if you restructure the environment, you may be able to nudge them into a different type of behavior. Sometimes you may need to create new messages or new heuristics that help people make better decisions. The key to behavioral economics is understanding how people make decisions and rather than fighting it, working with it. Now, when people talk about applying behavioral economics, that is kind of like saying applying behavioral science or applying audience segmentation or applying a health equity lens. It's a general approach, but it could mean a hundred different things since there are many, many tools to understand and to address health behaviors. So when we're using the term behavioral economics, it's a way of locating ourselves in this discipline, but you still need specific strategies and tactics. Now, there are a number of these that I teach in some of my training courses, but it takes a little while to become familiar with some of them and some of the key behaviors, learning what they are. That's really the first step, becoming familiar with some of the concepts. And then step two, learning to notice them in the wild, learning to see how people actually implement them or how people manifest these behaviors. And then the third thing is that you have to learn to anticipate them in advance so that you can create a campaign or intervention that takes them into account. So for example, let's say that you learn in behavioral economics about a very key concept called default options. The idea that people more often go with what's offered than making a change to get something different. So it's why you went with the fries instead of ordering the side salad, because it was a default option. So in behavioral economics, once you become aware of this and and think about default options and how they operate, then you may observe some of them in the wild. You observe that people tend to go with whatever side comes with the burger that they would have to opt out of fries and opt into a salad or a side dish of vegetables, but they don't. And, you know, if you looked at it from the perspective of the restaurant owner, you would realize that actually offering fries as the default option is the most profitable option often for them. So they make it the default. But if your objective was not profit, but was getting people to eat healthier, you would make the default combo come with a side salad and people would have to opt in to the fries instead of opting out of them. And you know what would happen? If people had to opt out of a salad and opt in to fries, far more people would eat a salad. Changing the default option to the behavior that you want people to engage in is a classic example of something behavioral economists call choice architecture. Once you start noticing choice architecture, you'll see how many things in life are set up backwards and actually make it harder to make good choices. But you'll also be able to anticipate people's decision-making and design your own interventions with the desired behavior as the default. We're going to be unpacking many, many key constructs in behavioral economics in future episodes so that you can have more of them in your bag of tricks more on choice architecture, more on nudges, and a lot of other great concepts. For now, though, I want you to think about 
making the case for behavioral economics, making the case to learn more about it. Think about some of the times that you spend or eat or drink more than you planned, or when you sleep or exercise or save less than you intended. And chances are there is a behavioral economics concept to explain it and probably one that could solve it too. Remember also that behavioral economics is an approach that works with the human tendencies to be emotional and lazy and avoid change and to have faulty reasoning so that people can make better decisions despite those tendencies. And the great thing about many, but not all behavioral economics concepts is that these tendencies, these tendencies to make bad decisions will be true of most people most of the time, just because they're human. So by comparison with other types of behavioral science, many behavioral economics constructs apply to a large swath of people. Whereas for other behavioral science, you might have to know a whole lot more about the individuals in question, need a much more detailed audience analysis to know people's attitudes, beliefs, and practices. So in other words, some behavioral economics concepts can be applied in just about any situation when you don't know a lot about your audience. And when you think about it, meeting people where they are and requiring fewer resources to get them to change their behavior, those two things are like magic. They make behavioral economics one of your best tools as a health communicator or a public health professional. So well worth looking in more detail at, which we will definitely do in our upcoming episodes. That's all for now. See you here next week for another episode of HealthCom Central. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and if you haven't already done so, please head over to your favorite podcast app and rate and review the podcast. I'd also love to hear from you about topics you'd love to see covered or questions that you have. You can write to me anytime at podcast at healthcomcentral.com. Till next week then, stay safe and stay science-based. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment now to leave a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe to HealthCom Central on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have friends and colleagues who should be part of our community, please share the link.